The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, anyways, hey, so we are in uh, the second to last week of a, a series that we've been in called Multiply. And what we're doing in this series is we're, we're kind of hop, skipping, and jumping through the book of Acts. And what we're seeing from the early church is how that shapes us as a multiplying church today. We're saying, what did the first church do and what lessons can we glean from that as a multiplying church uh, this new year? And uh, we are in actually, like Acts 17, what Barrett just read for us, is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And you've maybe heard me say that about other things too, but I really mean it this time, okay? Like, it's, it's so good, and, and here's why. What we get in Acts 17 uh, is the greatest missionary in Christian history, uh, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul. We, we see him share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus Christ in a culture that is actually pretty similar to ours, in a, in a pluralistic culture. In a culture where what's true and, and what's right, there's a variety of different viewpoints on that. There's a bunch of different beliefs on how the world's supposed to work. And Paul goes, enters into this scene, and he speaks the gospel amidst a pluralistic culture. Uh, whenever I read this text, it, it reminds me of my, my senior year of college. I, I went to India for two weeks, and, and I went there, and I was doing some work with some orphanages there. And uh, one day I had a, a day off from, from the work I was doing, and so I went to the marketplace and I'm at the marketplace, and I, and I went into this one little shop, and there was all these sort of tapestries and batiks. And so I'm just looking through all these things, trying to find souvenirs for folks back home. And, and uh, there, he had some, some tapestries that had, like, Christian images on them, Jesus and that sort of thing. I thought, oh, wow, these look really cool. And so while I'm looking at them, the, the shop owner comes up to me, and he says, oh, uh, are you a Christian, brother? And, and I said, yeah, I am. And he said, oh, me too, me too. I said, wow, you know, awesome. It's a pretty small minority down in, in, in southern India. It's amazing. Uh, and he said, yeah, so I tell you what, as my brother in Christ, you, you pick out whatever you want, and, and I'll give you a discount. And I was like, wow, thank you so much. And so, so I dig through it, and then I go, and, and I, I buy a tapestry, and I check out. But as I was about to leave, a buddy of mine came in, and so I just waited around uh, while my buddy checked out the shop, and I'm just standing there. And as I'm standing there, a, a Muslim couple walks in, and they start looking at things. I kid you not, shop owner walks over to them, and he goes, oh, are you a Muslim? Oh, me too, brother. Hey, I tell you what, I'll give you the discount. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> like, true story, right? And I, and I just got had so hard. Now, I don't know what the shop owner actually believes about the, the deeper things of life, of course, but, but that sort of uh, fluidity in worldview just to make a sale, right? That sort of fluidity in deeply held beliefs uh, for mere pragmatism, uh, it always makes me think of this text of Acts 17. Right, where, where Paul's walking through Athens, and, and you saw this, right? He's walking through the city, and he sees that it's full of idols. That, that the Athenians, they, they don't want to put their belief chips in any one basket. So they're just kind of like, well, well, we'll absorb this God, and we'll bring this one here, and walk along. And, and they, they want to be sure that they're safe. They want to be sure all their bases are covered. And so they're, they're staying pragmatic regardless of what may actually be true about life. But what we see Paul do in this city that's so fluid and so pluralistic in its beliefs and in its worldviews, we see him speak to it in a way that I think can shape how we can engage our world well too. And so what we see Paul teach us to do is this, that we'll be able to engage our world well when, first of all, we recognize where people are at, when we see that doctrine matters, and that the resurrection makes all the difference. Okay? That's how we'll engage our world well. We recognize where people are at, see that doctrine matters, 
and that the resurrection makes all the difference. All right, so let's get going. Let's recognize where people are at. Um, so let me just summarize that first part. So Paul's walking around uh, Athens, this great city, the one-time hub of philosophy and the arts and politics. Some would say it's the birthplace of democracy. So he's in this tremendous city in the ancient world, walking around, sees the idols. And I don't know if you caught it, verse 17, it says, his spirit was disturbed. Like, like something provokes him inside of him, and, he, and he's, he's like upset. He's like, man, these people, they don't know the real God. They've got all these false gods, but they don't know the true God, and it bothers him. And so he gets to work. And first he starts talking with, with Jewish people in the synagogues and says, hey, guys, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting, waiting for. And so he, he shares the gospel with them. But then we see pretty quickly, verse 18, he shifts from talking to people who are like him to talking to people who are not like him. Look with me at verses 18 to 19. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? All right, so Paul... We see here, verse 18, starts talking with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And what do they say? They say, what is this babbler talking about? Now, the word babbler there, it literally translated as seed picker. And so they say, well, what's this seed picker? Now, what they're getting at is this image. They're saying, who's this guy? Like, he seems to agree with some of the things. They're saying, like a, like a bird eating seed. Like, he's accepting some things, but he's disagreeing with some of our stuff. He seems to know a little bit about some things, but not much about anything. Like, they're just like, this guy's all over the place. We don't know what to do with him. Now, if we understand who the Epicureans and the Stoics are, it actually helps us understand why they would say Paul is a seed picker, why he's a babbler. Uh, so let me just do a brief history lesson uh, real quick. So Epicureans, uh, their, their belief system is this, that life is all about pursuing pleasure. It's about pursuing pleasure. It was, it was started by a guy named Epicurus, uh, and, and he said basically this. He said, hey, there's no afterlife. There's no ultimate judgment. You're not going to be held accountable for anything you do. So he said, hey, do what you want. All you got is the here and now. So make it count. Pursue pleasure, whatever you want. He's, Epicurus is actually the guy that coined the phrase, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? So that's, that's kind of the thing. And it didn't start out as just hedonism, but by this point in history, it was basically just hedonism. Like, hey, pursue pleasure. Let's have fun. Let's go. On the other end of the spectrum, we got Paul talking to the Stoics. Right? The Stoics. And the Stoics, or Stoicism was founded by a guy named Zeno. And he taught this, that there's, there's a natural order to things. He says there's, there's a created order. There's a way things are made to work. He, he had this belief that, that the universe, that there was somehow fate was involved, that there was a divine order to the way the world was supposed to work, and it was set up, and it was predetermined, and it was prescribed, and so you just kind of live into it. And so this philosophy really encouraged people. It said, hey, you can't control the world. Fate's in control of the world. You just control yourself. And so it's a very rigid philosophy. That's why to this day, right, we say that guy is very stoic, right? It's just very straight and narrow. Do your duty. Do what's in front of you. Do that. Now think about this. Think about Paul talking to both these groups of philosophers, right? So you can see him going up and talking about the gospel and being like, hey, guys, I got good news for you. Like Jesus, he's, he's the son of God. He, he paid the price for your sins. You're completely forgiven. God's grace is totally for you. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. It doesn't matter if you're a good person, bad person. It doesn't matter if you follow all the rules. It doesn't matter. God's grace is for you. He loves you. You can live in that freedom. You can imagine the Epicureans being like, yeah, buddy. Like that's what we're talking about. Let's party, right? But then 
the Stoics are like, hey, calm down, right? So then in the same breath, Paul goes, well, yeah, but you do understand that once you receive the gospel, once you see how it is, you don't live as a slave to your passions anymore. You live your life fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And you start living into the things that he taught you to do. You start doing the things that he's called you to do. And you can imagine the Stoics are like, oh, yeah, not being slave to our passions. Right on, buddy. Following rules. We love that. It's the coolest thing ever, right? And the Epicureans, like, putting their bong away. And they're saying, okay, you know, man, you're so close to being cool, bro. Right? And so these two camps of philosophers say, Paul, you're a seed picker. You're a babbler. We don't get what you're saying. You seem to be coming from all over the place. And so they say, hey, why don't you come to the Areopagus? Why don't you break down for us what you're really trying to say? And so they take Paul to the Areopagus, also called Mars Hill. And that was a place where people gathered to hear and discuss the latest thoughts and philosophies in the world. They say, hey, come here. We want to hear what's going on in the world. What's the, what's the, what's the, what's the new thing? What's the best ideas that are emerging in our world? That's what happened in the Areopagus. And so let's see what happens. Verse 22, Paul takes the stage. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, did you see what Paul does here? Right? Like, he's about to launch into a really heavy philosophical, doctrinal, religious argument. He's about to, to lay it out there pretty hard. But before he does that, he recognizes where the people are at. He's not joking around. He's not cutting them down. He's saying, you guys are religious. You're a devout bunch, man. You're seeking the truth. You're after it. He recognizes where they're at, and then he goes from there. And I think that's important for us to do, too to recognize where we're at in the world. That as we walk around our cities, as we walk around our places of live, where are people at? What do they believe about ultimate things, about meaning and truth and life? Where are people at? Uh, well, I've told some of y'all this story, uh, but I was, I was flying on a plane a, a few years ago when I was in seminary. And I'm flying on this plane, and normally, like, I don't know about the rest of you, but when I sit in a plane, I do not want to talk to anyone, like, just... Headphones in, let me read my book, leave me alone, right? Character flaw, whatever, it's just true. So uh, I'm sitting there, and this girl taps me on the shoulder, and I was like, oh. So, so she says, hey, so what do you do for a living? And like I said, I was in seminary at the time, so I said, oh, well, I'm in seminary, which normally is like an instant, cool, I'm not talking to you the rest of the flight, right? But for her, she just freaks out, and she's like, what? No way, that's incredible, which I thought was odd because no one reacts like that when you say you're in seminary. Uh, and so I was like, well, why are you so excited? And she explained, she's like, well, I used to be in seminary, uh, but I dropped out. And I said, oh, really? Very interesting. And I said, so, so why'd you drop out? Why'd, why'd you leave seminary? And she goes, oh, well, well, I'm not a Christian anymore. And I thought, that's, that's a good reason to leave seminary, right? Like, it's not, not going to work out. Um, and so as our, our conversation continued, I asked her, I said, so, so why'd you leave the faith? Like, why aren't you a Christian anymore? And what she said blew me away. She said, I left the faith because of TED Talks. TED Talks. All right, now for those of you who don't know what TED Talks are, uh, it's a nonprofit organization that sets up and, and hosts these talks by people who are, are experts who really excelled in one field or another. And the idea really is to share the best ideas. Their tagline is ideas worth spreading. And so they have these little talks all over the country. You can go online, check them out. Uh, and they encourage innovation and new ideas. They share ways to make our world better. And so TED Talks, really, I consider them our modern-day Areopagus. 
And it's these talks that made this girl leave the Christian faith. And so I asked her, I said, like, like, what? How does that work? And she said this. She said, after I watched these talks, she said, Gabe, I realized the world is just much too big for any one religion to be true. And so, so I, I heard all these good ideas, and Christianity just seemed so narrow. Now understand what's happening here. Somehow the message of Jesus Christ has gone from being winsome enough to gain a hearing in the largest public square at Paul's time to being a message so narrow that it can't be seen as encompassing some of the greatest ideas of our time. And I tell that story not to villainize this girl. I, certainly not at all. I think that's, that's just reality. And not to villainize us. What are we going to do about that, right? I point out that this is just reality, right? And I'm sure many of you have stories, anecdotes along those same lines. Friends, coworkers, relatives. where We've had similar conversations where it just says, like, it's cool you like Christianity, but doesn't that just seem small in a world as complex and diverse and unique as ours? This is one truth, this one Jesus. It seems too narrow. And so how do we respond to that? Well, I don't know exactly, but let's see what Paul does and see if, if it can shape us as, as he speaks to his audience. Look with me at verses 24 to 27. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So let's see what Paul does here. He's recognized where people are at, but then... What does he do right here? He articulates what he believes in a way that both affirms and confronts his audience. Right? He articulates what he believes in a way that both affirms and confronts his audience. And this is why, point two, I said doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. And I know I said that on the front end of the sermon, right? I was like, point two is going to be doctrine matters. And some of you thought like, oh, geez, this one's going to be a snoozer. And you may be right, okay? You may be right. But, but hear this. Understand that what Paul does here in this verse, 24 to 27, what he's doing here is doctrine. He's articulating truth about who God has revealed himself to be. And that's all doctrine is. It's articulating truths about who God has revealed himself to be. And so in these verses, Paul says God is the creator. He's the ruler. He's the sustainer. He's involved in this world. And then in verse 27, I love it, he says that he wants to get to know you, that this God is not some impersonal being, but he's actually not far from you. He wants you to reach out and find him. Amazing. That's all doctrine. And here's why it's so important for us to grasp why this matters in our world today. Uh, so I recently read a story about the, the great thinker, British thinker, C.S. Lewis, uh, he shares a story about how he was speaking at the, the British Royal Air Force, and he was talking about probably something deep, some sort of doctrinal type thing. He was talking about that to the British Royal Air Force, and he said as he spoke, an older officer got up and, and interrupted him and said, I've no use for all this stuff. No use for all this stuff, but he said, but mind you, I'm a religious man too. And he told Lewis, he said, I, I know there's a God, I've felt him. 
He said, out alone in the desert at night, he said, I felt the tremendous mystery. And he said to Lewis, that's why I just don't believe your neat little dogmas and your doctrine about him. He said to Lewis, to anyone who's met the real thing, who's met the real God, your little doctrines, your little ways of defining him seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. And so Lewis responded to the guy. And he responded to his critique, and he essentially said this. He said, on the one hand, I agree with you. So on the one hand, I, 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 you have an experience of God, and that seems so real, right? You have an experience with, with the living God, and then you look at a creed, like say we say the creed every day, and, and it's just not the same, right? It's like the, the level of experience is much deeper over here than it is here. He says it's kind of like if you were a person who were to go and sit on the beach and look at the ocean and see the waves, and say, oh, wow, I've been to the Atlantic Ocean. I've seen the Atlantic Ocean. He said, that's what it is to experience God. He said, but to talk about doctrine and what we articulate as true about God is basically like looking at a map of the Atlantic Ocean. So on the one hand, you have waves. On the other, you have color on a piece of paper. So Lewis says, I get what you're saying. But then Lewis says this, and I'm going to quote him here. We'll have it up on the screen, I think. Yeah. But here comes the point. The map is admittedly only colored paper. But there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it is based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. In that way, it has behind it masses of experience just as real as the one you could have from the beach. Only while yours would be a single glimpse, the map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you are content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map. But the map is going to be more used than walks on the beach if you want to get to America. Now hear me on this. So my friend on the plane, perhaps even some of you here this morning, you, you have this trouble with Christianity. And the trouble is that, that we have, as Christians... Uh, try to articulate who God is. We have doctrine. We try to articulate who God is by who he's revealed himself to be. And we stand by that. And for so many people, they say, oh man, that's so narrow. That's so limiting of the divine. But here's what I love about Lewis's illustration here. Is he recognizes, like for so many people, and so many people in our world, they sense that there's something more. There's very few people in this world that are just like, this is it, there's nothing else. There's a small percentage of the population. Most people sense that there's something more, that there's something beyond, that there's a deeper meaning behind it all, that there's more than meets the eye. They recognize the ocean. They see the waves. But the trouble is they just stay there staring at the ocean. What I love about Lewis is he says, now which is a more limiting view of the divine? Which is actually a smaller view of the ocean? One person's experience of it or records of hundreds of thousands of people who've had experiences just as real as yours and have simply articulated it. You see what he's doing there? You see his logic? I, I love it. And so Paul says this to his audience, and he says it to us this morning. Hey, I, I know you've seen the ocean, that you've glimpsed the divine. And he says to them, now let me show you the map. Let me show you where that ultimately leads to. Let me show you what continents that's connecting together. Let me show you where that's ultimately pointing to. And Paul tells us where that is. Look with me at verses 28 to 31. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul here, he says, hey, this God who created you, this God who sustains you, gives you every breath that you breathe, this same God is calling you to repentance. To repentance. He's calling you to turn from your ways, to turn from bowing down to your idols, to turn from your sin, to turn from living for just yourself, and to turn back to him. And why does Paul say they should do this? Verse 31, I don't know if you saw this. Why does he say you should repent? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. So he says, repent. Why? Judgment day. That God has appointed a man who we know is Jesus is going to call everyone to account for their actions. So as I prep for this message, like I don't know if you noticed, there's, there's all sorts of irony happening here. There's a sermon on a sermon. And, uh, and, and so as I prep for this message, like, I, I try to put myself in Paul's shoes, and I realize like, Paul is speaking to a difficult audience. Like, it's, it's people that are not familiar with the gospel. It's going to be weird. And so I thought, man, what are some of the difficult audiences I've talked to, and, and what do I do then? And so I was going through it, and like, I've, I've gotten to, to speak uh, in, in prisons. I got to speak at a homeless shelter in Costa Rica, in the slums of India. Uh, I got to speak at a professional haunted house convention, which is a whole other story, uh, right? <laughs> I did it twice, actually. It's just wild. Uh, anyways, can I tell you, whenever I speak in a more difficult place, guess what topic I don't bring up? Judgment day. I don't talk about it. No one likes it, right? So what's Paul doing here? Why does he do this? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. First of all, and most importantly, he does it because it's true. He does it because it's true. That there is a day when the world will be judged when all people will stand before God and have to give an account for their life. And I know I say that, and like we modern folks, we get like all bent out of shape about that, right? Like, hey, whoa, God is judge. No thanks. My God is a God of love. Yeah, so is mine. Like, that's why he judges, right? He's not okay with rape and genocide and murder and oppression. He's not okay with that. He's going to judge it. And see, the reality is we we want him to do that. See, our issue is not that God is going to one day judge the wicked. Our issue is that we don't want God to judge us because we don't want to see ourselves in that category. But the reality is, when we take stock of our lives, if we actually stop and think about it, we don't live up to God's standards. Like, none of us do. Like, we'll just, let's just do one command from the Bible, right? Golden rule. Everybody loves the golden rule. You don't have to be a Christian to love the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? That's it. One command. How are you doing with that? Right? Like, at all times, do you care as much about the welfare of others as you do about your own? At all times, you want what's best for everyone you interact with, with no selfish gain on your part even the people that have hurt you. I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? Like, we just take a second to take stock of our lives, and we see we don't live up to this. 
And so we live with this, this fear of judgment. The 20th century existentialist Paul Tillich said it like this. He said that we have the anxiety of guilt. And what he meant by that is that all people, he was surmising, have this sort of uh, inherent fear of judgment that eventually we're going to be found out, that eventually we're going to be exposed. And so we have this fear of condemnation. And I think that's why Paul brings this up in the Areopagus, that that's what he's driving at here, this anxiety of guilt that's inside of us, this need to escape judgment. And so how do we do that? Point three, the resurrection changes everything. See, in verse 31, if we can have it back up here, uh, Paul talks about how he appointed Jesus to, how God appointed Jesus to judge the world. And he did this, we know that this is the guy who's going to do it, by raising him from the dead. Now, what Paul's alluding to here is that Jesus died, that this judge that's going to judge the world died at some point and rose from the dead. Why is he doing that? Why did Jesus die? Well, Paul tells us in one of his letters, Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we are, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. While we were sinners, Jesus died for us. It says we're justified by his blood. That means those who trust in Jesus, you stand innocent before God. You're declared innocent before God. That's your position before him, that there's no wrath, there's no judgment coming on you for not living up to his standards. It doesn't happen because Jesus took the judgment for you. You see, Jesus is the judge who is judged. Jesus is the judge who is judged. What the gospel is and what Paul was getting to with the folks in the Areopagus and what our world needs to hear and what we need to hear is that anyone, anywhere who puts their trust in Jesus has already faced judgment day. That any of you who put your trust in Jesus have already faced judgment day. And you've been declared innocent on account of what Jesus has done for you. And you can be confident of this because he rose from the dead. You see, this is why the resurrection changes everything. See, this is what Paul's getting at. There is a judgment day. And the reality is, friends, like you can try and face it on your own, right? You can say, oh, I hope my scales balance out. You know, I think I'm going to be good enough. You can try and face it on your own. Or you can say, forget my record. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. I'm banking it on his record. His perfection then becomes yours. His righteousness becomes yours. His innocence becomes yours. His relationship to the Father becomes yours. Friends, that's where the map leads. And it's for all people. And so you can't get broader than that. So I pray you put your trust in him today and always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word, for this text, in which you remind us who you are, that you're a creator, that you're a sustainer, that you give us every breath we breathe. But not only that, Lord, but you want to be in relationship with us. You want to know us. And you made a way for that to happen, Lord, through your son, Jesus. And I pray 
that we would trust in him, that we'd find our righteousness, we'd find our life, we'd find our hope in him. It's all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.